Nehemiah 12, verse 44. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned their curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Let's pray. Our Father, your word is what we need today. Whether we're here today as a Christian as one who has already embraced the gospel, or if we're here today as someone who is still outside of Christ, this word is what we need. This word is what you have prescribed for us to hear this morning. There's life in this word. There's Jesus in this word. Help us to see him. Help us to believe in him. Help us to exalt him in what we say and do here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's been said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. For instance, I used to install our window air conditioning units by by myself. And every summer I would think, ah, I don't need any help carrying these. I probably won't hurt my back this time. This time, it will be different. But my back just would never agree to that plan, and inevitably, I'd end up hobbling around our apartment in air-conditioned comfort with my back out of whack. See, if you're stuck in a situation that repeats itself again and again, and it's repeatedly ending in failure, it's time for a new approach. I eventually learned my lesson. I don't carry air conditioners by myself anymore. Now, in our passage of Scripture today, we're going to see how the nation of Israel is stuck in just such a pattern of failure, and Nehemiah is going to be forced to reckon with the latest version of it. See, for hundreds and hundreds of years now, Israel has been caught in a miserable cycle of disobedience. It started all the way back in Exodus. God gloriously delivers them from Egypt. They immediately start to rebel. He graciously gives them his holy law. They immediately make themselves a golden calf and worship it. He promises to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. They refuse to enter. When at last he does bring them into the promised land, they forsake him to worship idols. 
He raises up kings and prophets to shepherd them, but their kings go astray. And they refuse to listen to the prophets. And they become more and more and more entrenched in idolatry and wickedness until finally God said, enough! I'm done with this! And he set his face against Israel and Judah and gave them into the hand of their enemies and sent them into exile. But even then, even then, he could not wholly abandon Israel because... He is a merciful and gracious God. And besides, he had promises to keep. Promises that he had made long ago to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David. And so now, after 70 years of exile, he has brought them back to the promised land and established them there. And he's enabled them to rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall. And Ezra and Nehemiah have been ministering among them and calling them back to faithfulness to the Lord. And in BJ's sermons the last couple of weeks, we saw how they confessed their sins and they declared, You, Lord, have always dealt faithfully with us, but we have acted wickedly. And they say, Now, now we're going to bind ourselves with a firm covenant to obey God's law. And they make Very specific promises. But the huge question is, will things be different this time? Will Israel finally break that miserable cycle of disobedience? Are they going, at long last, to obey God? I'd say there's been a couple of promising signs. Since they got back from the exile, there's already been several occasions where their leaders have had to get after them about their sin, and they've actually listened. Back in Ezra 8, 9, and 10, they put away the foreign, unbelieving wives. In Nehemiah 5, the rich Israelites who had been impressing the poor stopped doing so when Nehemiah confronted them. And then in chapters 9 and 10, the whole nation gathered and participated in a ceremony where they confessed their sin and They renewed the covenant. I'd say they're fairly well set up for covenant faithfulness. And even in the verses that I already read, they're taking concrete steps to stay faithful. So maybe, maybe, this time it's going to work. What do you think? Then after serving as Israel's governor for 12 years, Nehemiah goes back to King Artaxerxes for a while. Some period of time. We don't know how long he stayed away. But eventually he asked the king's leave to return once more to Jerusalem. What do you think he's going to find when he comes back? Guys, it's a, it's a total nightmare. It's a total nightmare. It's, it's the parents coming back after a weekend away to find that their teenagers thrown a huge keg party and the house is now a disaster zone. That's what it's like. Nehemiah is confronted with the reality that Israel has completely and utterly failed to keep any one of the covenant vows. In fact, everything that they explicitly promised not to do in the firm covenant, that's exactly, precisely what they went out and did. Their behavior essentially mirrors what they promise to do, except that mirror is shattered in a thousand pieces. Let's just take a look at the damage. 
I want you to turn back. We're going to flip back and forth from the firm covenant that they made to what actually happened. So go back a page to chapter 10, verse 38. This is what they promised not so very long ago. 10, verse 38. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. So vow number one. We won't fail to provide for the temple with our tithes. We'll make sure that they're in the right place. We'll make sure they get to the right people. We will not neglect the house of God. Now keep your finger there in chapter 10. Flip back to chapter 13, verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah. Remember Tobiah? He's the enemy. He's the Ammonite. Provided for Tobiah in the house of our God a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priests. While I was, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, and I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Folks, this is just outrageous. In the period while Nehemiah has been away, the Israelites have failed to provide for the Levites and the singers, so they've had to leave Jerusalem, go to their own farms outside the city just so they could eat, which means that the temple worship can't be offered as it ought to be. But not only this, but Eliashib the priest, he might even be the high priest, or it might be a guy with a different name, he's cleared out from the Lord's house the tithes from one of the big rooms, and he's given it as living quarters to Tobiah. That same guy who had plotted violence against them to stop the wall from being built is now living in the temple complex. Or at least he has rooms. 
Maybe it's an Airbnb for him. He's an Ammonite. When the law says an Ammonite can never be admitted to the family of God. That's what we read back at the beginning of the chapter. Not because if he hasn't joined himself to Israel and forsaken his false gods that he couldn't be brought in, but he hasn't. He's living in the temple complex. Imagine, friends, if while BJ goes away to officer training school, imagine if he came back and he found that while he was gone, I had rented out the foundation rooms as office space for the Vermont chapter of American Atheists. How do you think BJ would respond when he gets back? See, they, they went from, we will not neglect the house of our God, to removing the tithes from the temple so that the enemy of God's people can infiltrate and move in. So vow number one is just shattered. And Nehemiah is enraged. He enters the temple courts. He throws all Tobias' furniture out. He orders the rooms to be cleansed. And he devotes them again to the worship of God. He confronts the leaders. He says, why have you let God's house fall into such a state? So he brings back the Levites. He gets them set up so that those who minister the temple are properly supported. And now, God's house can function again. And then he reflects back on all this and he prays the first of four prayers of remembrance. He says, Lord, remember me for the good that I have done for the house of my God. He's not, he's not advocating that God should somehow, uh, should somehow, that he's earned God's favor. He's saying, Lord, show me, let it be known on the last day that I've been a good and faithful servant. I've remembered the house of my God. Well, let's see how the Israelites fared with vow number two. So go back to chapter 10. Look at verse 31. Here's vow number two. And if the peoples of the land bring in any goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. In other words, we promise not to profane the Sabbath. Okay, vow number two. Go back to 13, verse 15. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, and figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, meaning foreigners, on the Sabbath, uh, sorry, Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you were doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my my servants at the gates so that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kind of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? 
If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. So here's vow number two. Shattered. Israel is profaning the, profaning the Sabbath, and I hope you notice they did it in precisely the way they said that they wouldn't. In fact, they're buying from foreigners who are selling on the Sabbath. It seems like the Sabbath day market is a pretty happening place in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah again has to roll up his sleeves and start cleaning house. He rebukes the Jerusalem nobles who have been allowing this. He says, this violation of God's law is one of the reasons God exiled us in the first place. So are you inviting his wrath on us again? And then he shuts the gates. Shuts the gates on Friday night before sundown when the Sabbath begins and he shuts them until Sunday morning. That way no one can come in to sell on the Sabbath. Now the merchants... They're sneaky. They think they'll get around this. So they set up shop right outside the city wall. Well, Nehemiah comes out and he starts taking names, doesn't he? Don't let me find you out here again. I will lay hands on you. That's a neat little threat there, isn't it? I, I apparently know one dad who, uh, who used to say that to his kids from time to time. You do that again, I will lay hands on you. <laughs> <laughs> So from time to from that time on, they they don't come out anymore. <laughs> so Nehemiah, notice the language. He purifies the people so that they keep the Sabbath holy. And, and Nehemiah again prays that the Lord will, resem- will remember his zeal for the law to his credit, according to God's steadfast love. Okay, finally, vow number three. Back to chapter ten, verse thirty. I, You don't have to turn. In the firm covenant, this is what they promised. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We will not intermarry with the idolatrous nations. Now, let's read in chapter 13 again, verses 23 to 29. In those those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, that's that's like where the Philistines used to live, Ammon and Moab. Remember, Ammon and Moab, no one from that descent who's still an idolater is allowed to enter the assembly. They married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel, nevertheless Foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood. 
and the Levites. So we're back to their Achilles heel. Intermarriage with idolaters. And to his dismay, Nehemiah on his return finds out that they've been doing it again. So rather than remaining a separate and holy people devoted to the Lord, they have joined themselves to the heathen. And their kids can't even speak Hebrew. They're speaking the language of their mothers, which means the new generation that's coming up is going to lose their identity as the people of God. They won't be able to have access to the law of God because they don't speak the language of the law. So once again, Nehemiah takes severe measures. He confronts them curses them, beats some of them, pulls out their hair. Now, don't read that as like some out-of-control maniac. This is Nehemiah acting as the judge and as the enforcer of God's law. See, on the day of the firm covenant, they bound themselves, wonder if you noticed this, and we talked about it in the home group study, they bound themselves with a curse and an oath. Well, they violated their oath, so now he brings the covenant curse down upon them. And that includes administering these punishments of chastisement and public humiliation, which is what what it would mean for him to pull out their hair, maybe pull out their beards. And it's so, so bad. It's so bad that even the high priest's grandson is married to the daughter of Sanballat. You remember that guy? He's the other terrible enemy of God's people, the governor of Samaria, who masterminded all sorts of plots in an effort to stop the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now, those plots all failed. But now, what he wasn't able to do by force, he's done by other ways. And he's weaseled his way in by joining himself by marriage into the high priest's family. So, one enemy of God living in the temple the other enemy of God, married into the high priest's family. So Nehemiah drives this young man away from him. This time, his his remembrance prayer is not about himself. It's It's an imprecatory prayer. It's a prayer asking the Lord, don't forget the evil that these priests have committed. They've desecrated the priesthood by marrying into the families of God's enemies. So Nehemiah is angry. He's angry at their breaking of the covenant, and as he takes up his responsibilities in Jerusalem again, he's all earthquake and storm and fire. But what's he trying to accomplish? He's trying to purify the people. And sometimes things have to be purified with fire. I wonder if you notice something about the particular way Israel broke all three of those covenant oaths. Each case, it involved them getting entangled with foreigners, with idolaters, with people who don't serve the Lord. Which means that Israel has failed to maintain their holiness. Their holiness, which both means their righteousness and and just means their set-apartness. All the way back in Deuteronomy, explained that Israel was to be his special people. His distinct people, chosen by him as his treasured possession. They were to be holy as he is holy. And that's the problem, because throughout the centuries, holy is precisely what Israel has always failed to be. And now, once again, they've totally blown it. Once again, they've gotten tangled up with foreigners who are going to draw their hearts away from the Lord. 
That's why Nehemiah is responding with such fury. He's acting on the Lord's behalf. He's a redeemer for them, and he's got to work to purify them once again. So read the last two verses of this, this book. We're coming to the end of this wonderful series. This is the end, the postscript. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. That's his summary of what he tried to do. He cleansed them from everything foreign. He's separating them out again from among the nations so that they can be holy, at least outwardly. He's working to separate them from the defilement of idolatry and the temptation to compromise. This was his great work. And by the end, it does appear that he achieved some measure of success. He says, I cleansed them. Meaning that they got cleansed to some degree. But I ask you, is it really going to last this time? Is that finally the magic formula that's going to be bringing about lasting change for them? Is it Nehemiah coming in like a whirlwind to pluck out beards and clean house? Is that what it's going to take? Is it going to be different this time? Do any of you really think that's going to happen? Because if you do, I've got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. I hate to say it, but everything that Nehemiah has done, it's like taking your three-year-old who's been outside all morning making mud pies and you take and you stick him in the bathtub and you wash off all the mud and you dress him in nice clean clothes and you take him back outside and you say, now, you play out here. Daddy's got to go back inside. Don't get dirty. (laughs) How is that going to go? See, Nehemiah is a wonderful figure. He's a heroic figure. He's a great redeemer for God's people. But he can't actually do much more than put band-aids on the problem. And Israel needs more than band-aids. They've broken all their covenant vows. Again, they're still caught in this miserable, seemingly unending cycle of disobedience. What is it going to take to break out? Now, some of you are sitting here today and you're in the exact same boat. You're caught up in this very same cycle that they were. You have tried. You have tried so hard to lead a decent life. You try to do the right thing. You try to do right by others. You really want to be a good person. But despite all your efforts and all your attempts and all your striving, something always comes back to ambush you. And you find that once again, you've gone back and done the thing that you hate and that you promised yourself that you wouldn't ever go back to. Once again, you realize you've, you've gone and gotten drunk or gotten stoned, something. Once again, you've lashed out in a bitter outburst of rage at your spouse or your kids, or your friends. Once again, you've lied yourself into a corner. 
Once again, your parents' seemingly idiotic rules have you seething against their authority. Or you've fallen for sexual sin once again. Or you're suddenly realizing that your hatred for some other person has you all twisted up inside with envy and malice and a desire to see them suffer. And when you're honest with yourself, you realize it's not getting any better. There's no reason for you to expect that the next week's going to be any different. You're caught in a miserable cycle. Fail, try to do better. Fail again, try to do better. Fail. And you seek to change your ways again and again and again. Maybe you used to expect a different result. And you thought that this time it really would be different. But now you're beginning to to suspect that that really is the definition of insanity. But you don't know what else to do. And what makes it so much worse is that you don't want it to be that way. You want to do what's right, but sin has you by the throat. And you don't have any power to say no to it. Maybe you're even starting to get wise to the fact that this sin that holds you captive is an offense to a holy God who created you. And that this evil within you that you can't shake is something that he will one day bring to judgment. And maybe you're starting to suspect that you would actually deserve it if his righteous wrath were to fall on you. And even though that thought terrifies you, you can no longer pretend that it wouldn't be just. And you desperately need to break free. Now, if I'm describing you, I know something of what you're experiencing because I can remember being in the exact same position. But what is it going to take to break free? How can the pattern actually be broken? For Israel, for you, for everyone caught in this miserable cycle, what's actually needed? What's needed is the coming of Emmanuel. What it's going to take is the news brought by the angel. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As the Lord spoke by the prophet, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That will break the cycle. See, it takes Jesus. It takes Jesus, who's a greater redeemer than Nehemiah was. See, Nehemiah points us to him beautifully, but he could only cleanse Jerusalem on the outside. He couldn't change the people's hearts. He couldn't change their nature. Only God can change a nature. Only God can change a heart. But Jesus is God. He's God come down as man to redeem us. He came to do business with his people's sin. He wasn't all that polite about it always either, was he? Another prophet said of him, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can abide the day of his coming? 
Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. When Jesus came into his temple and saw it defiled and used for wicked purposes rather than the worship of God, he made a whip. He started turning over tables. He laid hands on those who would defile God's house and he drove them out and he called them a bunch of robbers. See, please be clear. Jesus absolutely hates sin. He hates it. And he is intent on purging his people of all unrighteousness by whatever means necessary. And so sometimes he is fire and earthquake and fury because he hates sin. But take heart. Because he also deals gently, gently with broken sinners. See, breaking the cycle takes a greater redeemer who establishes a better covenant. The old covenant didn't do it. It could never work. All those sacrifices, all those priests, year in, year out, doing the same old, same old, same old, same old thing, and it never changed a thing. See, for all the promises that Israel's made, this firm covenant that they signed, it all came to nothing. It wasn't that their intentions weren't good. The issue was they didn't have any power to keep it. And that's true today as well. Sinners can make all sorts of promises of self-reformation, but it simply is not in their nature to keep those promises. It's not even that they don't want to, it's that they can't. The mind set on the flesh is death, Romans 8 says. The one who is in the flesh cannot please God. It's an ability problem. That's why a better covenant was needed. And so when Israel was stuck in her miserable cycle, the Lord spoke through the prophets and he said, Behold, Days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which they broke. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. Friends, Israel needed... We needed a new covenant, a better covenant, one that does not depend on sinners gritting their teeth and trying hopelessly to do better next time. Listen, hearts of stone can't obey God. Hearts of stone can't reform. Hearts of stone are dead hearts. They cannot get better. What you and I needed, therefore, was a heart transplant. We needed a covenant that would provide new hearts, hearts with the law of God written on them that would work properly again. And this is exactly what Jesus came to establish. And so the night before he died, he takes a cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness 
of sins. See, covenants have to be sealed with blood, and he was to seal this new and better covenant with his blood. The next day he went to the cross, and there he dealt definitively with the sin of his people. They couldn't deal with it themselves, right? So he assumed it. He assumed their sin and took it upon himself. And then all the earthquake and the storm and the fury of the righteous and holy wrath of God broke in upon Jesus and he absorbed it. And it crushed him. But before he gave up his spirit, he was able to say, he was able to say, it is finished. All that wrath against his people's sins was spent, which means they're gone. They're paid for. They're actually done. They're actually blotted out forever and ever and ever. Jesus actually dealt with sin. See, friends, listen to me. If you're stuck in your sins, there's there's hope. There's hope. There's a way to get rid of those sins. It's not cleaning yourself up, because you can never do that. It's going to Jesus Christ and looking at him and beholding him upon the cross with the blood of the new covenant flowing from his hands and his head and his side. And it's saying, Jesus, will you deal with my sin? Would you deal with my sin? Will you wash my sin away with your blood so that I can be made clean? And he will. That's the glory of it. He will. He can and will deal with your sin. There's still plenty of mercy, plenty of forgiveness, plenty of cleansing available for you if you will come to him. It's for you also. See, it takes the greater Redeemer who establishes a better covenant and who provides true cleansing And the wonderful thing is that the cleansing that Jesus provides actually works. It actually gets the job done. It actually cleanses because the new covenant comes with the new heart. That's part of the covenant. You get the new heart. And so it's not like the three-year-old in the mud pies. Because when we come to Jesus, our nature is changed. We're not only forgiven the guilt of our sin, but we're set free from our slavery to sin. And so when it comes calling, you can say no. And we're actually given Jesus' righteousness so that little by little, the Holy Spirit works it into us. Yeah, the change is gradual. Yeah, the process is messy. But it works. Jesus' cleansing breaks the cycle, and actually makes us holy. Now, for those of you who profess faith in Christ, I've been talking a lot to the unbelievers today. Now I want to talk to those of you who profess faith in Christ, and I'd like to speak just a word on on point to two groups of you. Those with robust consciences, and those with tender consciences. For you with robust consciences who can tend to be careless with sin. I would say to you that this text would call us not to confuse slavery with struggle. Because if your struggle never results 
in actual progress toward holiness, then you may need to consider whether Israel's experience is still your experience. Because it doesn't matter what you say with your, with your mouth. Israel said plenty with her mouth. See, that's not the experience of those who are in Christ. That's the dog returning to its vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returning to wallow in the mire. Now, could it, might it be helpful for you to take an inventory of your life and conduct a few little tests to see if there's ever been a definitive breaking in your life with disobedience. If there's evidence that Jesus has really done business with your sin, which has produced some degree of lasting change. See, I think there's a warning in this text a little bit. Because if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, the evidence of Jesus' cleansing work is that we walk no longer in the darkness. So if that's a word you might need to hear, take some time with it. Consider, is Israel's experience my experience? Cycle after cycle. No break. Just sin. Think about it. But then I need to speak a word to you with tender consciences because you might be inclined to walk away from this passage fretting because you look at Israel's failure again and you think, boy, it sure feels like that looks a lot like me. I'm still blowing it on a regular basis and my sin still so easily entangles me. What if this means I haven't experienced Jesus' cleansing? You're quick to go there. And to you, I would say the opposite. Don't confuse struggle with slavery. It's not the same thing. Is your progress slow? Yes, it can be slow. But look back to before your conversion and have someone help you if you need to. Can you say, you know, I'm, I'm not the same person I was. I see the effects of Jesus' cleansing. John Newton, writer of Amazing Grace, former slave trader, said this, I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil. I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon I shall put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I am not what I was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am who I am. And friends, that's cause for rejoicing. That's cause for rejoicing. See, for the true believer to recognize that this was our experience, but it isn't any longer. That's 
cause for joy. We aren't who we used to be. Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we're changed. And we're changing because he redeemed us by his blood. And then it it calls out for us longing too. Because aren't you ready for the struggle to be over? Don't you long to just be quit of sin forever and for the yuck that still clings to you to be only a memory? Then I think, as we, as we finish this series on Ezra and Nehemiah, and we think about the fact that they built a physical city, but it's only a picture. It's only a picture of the great and glorious and holy city that's to come. Let us be looking for and getting ready for and wetting our appetite for the day when Jesus will come back for us and bring us safely home to that holy city where righteousness dwells. What will it be like? What will it be like when we see him coming with the clouds, our glorious Redeemer, with hands and feet still bearing the scars of the wounds that healed us? And he'll be coming for us this time. And he raises us up with glorious new bodies that have his resurrection life flowing through them. And then we begin to realize that in these bodies, we're never going to sin again. In fact, we couldn't even if we wanted to, but we will never want to again. And that is wonder and glory. We'll have truly left sin and all of its misery behind us for good, and he'll gather us to himself and say to us, Behold, I'm making all things new. Come on in. Come on in. I've prepared a city for you. And we'll forever behold his face. And it says that when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has that hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this salvation that you've paid out on the installment plan and already Many of us have experienced the beginnings of it, and we so long for the fullness and the fulfillment of it, when we'll actually be done with our sin. Lord, I pray for those who are yet outside of Christ, who yet are caught in the miserable cycle. Oh God, I pray that you would free them through the mercy of your Son. May they look to Jesus and see in him the solution that they need, the way to break the wheel. Father, I ask that you would cause them to look on him and believe to their eternal salvation and your eternal glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.